to the Word of God, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And I'm going to begin a few verses ahead, or behind rather, in chapter 20, to kind of give us context. I'm going to start in verse 36 of chapter 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he had spoken that he, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to a ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having a f- found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard it and set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. There the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. We went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Almighty God, our Lord, our Savior, our King. We humble ourselves. We come just seeking your face, asking you, O Lord, pleading with you to open your word to our hearts. Open our hearts, open our eyes, our minds. Help us to perceive, to understand and to apply what we read today. I pray that as we examine the text, O Lord, may your word shape us and mold us, as we learned in our confession today, to correct us, to reprove us that we may repent from our sin, 
and turn to you, Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this great privilege, for this honor uh, to stand under your word. I thank you, Lord God, for the, for the anointing of the Spirit, and I pray your anointing would be upon me, my mind and my, my lips. Use me as a vessel of honor for your glory. Overshadow me. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill me with power and unction to proclaim your word. May our hearts be tender before thee. We pray, dear God, that your will be done in Christ's name. Amen. How do we know the will of God in our lives? It's one of the most important questions that uh, we face as we go through life. As we become Christians and there's a great elation and joy when we first get saved, the, the excitement of knowing Christ and having known the forgiveness of God and the power of his love. But as life goes before us, we're all going to be faced with throughout our journey from youth up to our elderly years with tough decisions. Whenever we're faced with a tough decision, we often ask the question, what is the will of God? And sometimes the will of God is clear. We know what it is and there's not much to think about. Other times it is not so clear. Sometimes it's a little fuzzy or we're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. Now, generally speaking, when we are discerning or trying to discern the will of God for a decision in our lives, you know, we, we, we want to line up with God's word, with what his revealed will is. And what his revealed will is, will tell us what is moral and righteous and what is immoral and unrighteous. And our duty in seeking an answer through God's word is to understand, will our decision glorify God? Is it motivated with a sense of living for him and bringing honor to his name or is it merely just to carry out my pleasures and my delights or even worse is it to sin against God and sometimes we can be faced with decision A and decision B and neither decision is immoral or ungodly they're both good decisions and we don't know what to do so for instance you have a young man he meets two Christian women let's say you know Young girl A and young girl B, both Christians, both godly women, both have a lot to offer, and, and um, he has a possibility of entering into a relationship with either one. Would it be sinful or wrong to date either one or not date either one? And so he seeks the will of God. What is your will, O Lord? What is your specific will? And that's the question, right? What is your specific will? young woman gets accepted to two different Christian colleges. Both very good colleges, both offering full scholarships. Which one do I go to? Is there a right or wrong answer? What is your will, O Lord? Sometimes we can agonize in prayer, seeking for a sign, seeking for some moment to make it clear to us. I had to face that several years ago when I first got called to be a pastor of this church. It wasn't an easy decision for me. Claudia and I had uh, just come back from a vacation in California. Uh, we were in the north, northern section of California, San Francisco, Bay Area. 
Um, and, and I remember particularly this area called Dublin, California. It was a newly developed area outside of Oakland. And uh, there were, it was a beautiful condominium complex. And um, we, we really were, were in love with it. We were in love with the condos. Uh, just like a really nice modern condo. I think for 500 it could have been bought. It would have been a beautiful deal. Uh, we were in the process of putting our co-op on the market. And we were going to move to California. That was our goal. We, we went there a few times on vacation, loved it. We were going to move there. And then on February 14th, 2005, I get a phone call from Pastor Ed Moore. And says, by the way, Bob, I had met with the elders. We met, and we want to ask you if you want to become the pastor of Grace and Truth Church. Hmm. Let me think about that, Ed. I'll get back to you. Grace and Truth was a fledgling church at the time. And um, maybe 15, 20 people. And um, we really didn't have much to do. We had very few people that could help and serve. It, the call was quite the challenge. Pastor Paul remembers, because I called him for help shortly after I took the call. It took me about three months to make up my mind. On one side, I had the choice to move to California, get out of New York, start a brand new life, uh, go to college out there, finish my, my studies, I, I even had a, got accepted to Master's Seminary on a special program that would have allowed me to advance right to uh, graduate school without having to complete my bachelor's degree. I had a lot of opportunity there. And then Grace and Truth, and it was a small, fledgling church. What do I do? Well, we know what I did because I'm here, right? But getting to that point took a lot of prayer and a lot of seeking the will of God. And sometimes the will of God isn't always the path that we would choose naturally. Sometimes the will of God calls us to make risky moves. Sometimes the will of God causes, calls us to sacrifice our own desires, our own ambitions, our own will for his sake. Sometimes the will of God calls us into danger. And everyone else may say, you're crazy, don't do it. I have a friend of mine who went into the mission field, came from a very wealthy family. The day he decided to go into the mission field, his parents, they're Christians, godly people, said, what are you, nuts? Why in the world would you want to go to the mission field? You have so much potential. We sent you to good college. You, you have everything going for you. You're going to throw it all away and go move to a, a developing country? His own parents did everything to dissuade him. But he saw the call of God. The call of God was to give it all up for the sake of his will. Sometimes following God will lead us to go against the wind. It will lead us to make choices that may not seem logical to those around us. But in the end of the day, that call has a greater meaning and significance and honor when we know we've done what's right in the eyes of God. Now, if one of you came up to me today and says, you know, I think God is calling me to be a missionary in Iran. I would say, have you prayed about it? You know, some people just have ideas that pop into their minds and you really have to discern and know the will of God. You know, 80% of missionaries who go into the mission field, 
fail and come back to America. Because they, they had a desire to serve, but it wasn't from God, it was the flesh. So being able to discern through that takes a lot of prayer and a lot of focus. That brings me to my sermon today. Because in this text, the Apostle Paul is faced with a choice. The Apostle Paul is getting a clear indication from God what lays ahead of him. Persecution, imprisonment, possibly death. Everybody on one side is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. It's stupid. Paul says, I'm going. Who was right? Let's dive in and take a better look. First point of today's sermon, Paul's travelogue from Miletus to Caesarea. The last we left off with Paul, he is in Miletus. He gives his farewell speech to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he tells them, I'm never going to see you again. There's much weeping. There's, there's an emotional farewell. He had a close bond with these people for three years. They end by kneeling down and praying uh, on the beach, and he gets on the ship with his team, his mission team, and they set sail. And Luke gives this eyewitness account of their itinerary. And, um, but it's important to see something here that doesn't quite jump out with the English Standard Version. In verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, when we had parted from them. And I, and I, and I want to stop there for a minute, because that word parting is the word aposepio in Greek. And that word is not translated. The meaning there is not translated uh, the way it should be in the English Standard Version. It, it literally means to tear away or to draw off. And it shows how strong this and how emotional this farewell speech is that they literally had to tear themselves away from the Ephesian elders. This was not an easy time for them. I'm sure as they got on the ship, their emotions were still... Um, were still flowing through them. And so Luke gives a, um, a summary of their itinerary. They go from coast to Rhodes. Now Rhodes is the same Rhodes where the statue of Colossus once stood, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's what's the model for the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. Um, it was a ginormous statue, and it had fallen long before Paul had gotten there. From Rhodes to Patara, and then on their way to Tyre in Syria. They had made it to the coast of the, um, of the east side of the Mediterranean, and we're not far now, maybe 700 miles from Jerusalem. Paul had a seven-day layover there. We're not told why, uh, possibly due to weather, although they had to unload the cargo. It's unlikely it took seven days. But what happens in that seven-day layover it says that the apostolic team sought the disciples. Well, who are the disciples? The church. Now, it's interesting because the book of Acts mentions no activity of a church plant in Tyre. Nevertheless, although we are focusing on the work of Paul and the work of Peter and the work of those who are highlighted in the book of Acts, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is limited to that activity. God is working through other men and women, and churches are being planted and developed. And in the city of Tyre, an ancient city with a lot of history, there had developed a thriving church. Who planted it? I don't know. But it's interesting. What does Paul seek once he gets there? He seeks the brothers. 
He wants to visit the church there, to spend time with them, to share with them. One of the blessings I have found over the years is that Claudia and I have traveled, we, especially when we were young, we used to travel. I love going to different places and finding out where's the church and meeting different Christians in different states, in different communities, in different countries. I love to, to hear what God is doing in their lives, to see how God is working and building friendships, some friendships that we've maintained for years now. There was great hospitality here, and they took the apostolic team in. And it's a reminder that among Christians, we're like family. And even if you never met a Christian in your life, and you go to a foreign country, you go to a foreign state, and you interact with that person, you'll feel like you knew them for 20 years. That's the bond we share as Christians. It's a, it's a bond that very few people have and enjoy. It's because we're bound in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Holy Spirit. And so there where Paul spends his time, he gets his first warning from fellow Christians. And, and what do they say to him? They say they warn him about going to Jerusalem. And they say, through the Spirit, Luke records to us, do not go to Jerusalem. Do not go to Jerusalem. Now, there's probably more context there, but the message that they had felt led to communicate to Paul was that he should not go to Jerusalem. Was this indeed a message that came to Paul through the Holy Spirit? Was it misunderstood by the Christian brothers and sisters there? What, did they think they had an impression from the Spirit? Was Paul disobedient? Well, I don't think it takes a lot of foresight to know that Paul had made a lot of enemies along his journeys. He was going to Jerusalem to Pentecost, one of the biggest feast days of the year. It was a great time of patriotic enthusiasm. Jews from all over the Roman Empire were going there. Paul had already spent years preaching and the gospel uh, in all these Gentile regions and the Jews in each city really became infuriated with him. They became angered with him. They were hunting him down. They were all going to be there in one place. Not really where you want to go, is it? But Paul had other intentions. We forget that Paul had made a collection from all the churches he planted. He had a large collection to bring to Jerusalem to help support the poor in Jerusalem. He was not going to be diverted from his mission. He went there to give testimony of what God was doing among the Gentiles. These were his people. He could not divert from what God was calling him to do. Paul knew the danger. Paul understood what laid ahead of him. He said that in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Now notice, he, as far as Paul is concerned, he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. The people in Tyre, through the Spirit, are telling him not to go. Is that a contradiction? Who's the Holy Spirit speaking to? But he does say this, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. He knows he's led by the Spirit to go there, but he also is aware that the Holy Spirit is telling him, persecution awaits you. 
after spending seven days there in Caesarea and developing relationship, there is another farewell. He gets off to the next ship, and uh, again, everybody comes out this time, husbands, wives, children, they kneel on the beach and they have a time of prayer. It shows you the priority of prayer in the book of Acts. One thing you can't miss going through the book of Acts is the priority of prayer. Throughout every chapter, we see the church on their knees praying, seeking God. Everything is done through prayer. The, 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 the theme throughout Acts is the guidance of the Holy Spirit, of the people of God seeking him through prayer and understanding his will. And they set off to Caesarea. Verse 7, we get to our next point. It says, when we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemy. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was out one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Oh, Philip. Remember Philip the Evangelist from Acts chapter 6. Philip was one of the seven, Luke reminds us. About 20 years had passed at this point. It had been a long time since we checked in on Philip. Philip was one of the six chosen by the apostles to serve tables, to distribute the food to the widows in Jerusalem so that the apostles could focus their attention on preaching the word and prayer. But Philip didn't stay in Jerusalem. Philip was called to be an evangelist. We find him going to Samaria and preaching the gospel and there being a great revival. And remember that whole episode where Simon Magus gets supposedly gets converted, turns out to be a false convert, and John and Peter come up and, and refute him. And then we read about the Ethiopian eunuch who, who Philip met on the on way uh, to Jerusalem. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? No, why don't you come up here and teach me? And the Ethiopian eunuch is converted. And he says, oh, there's some water. Why don't we get baptized? And he baptizes him. And then the spirit whisks him away, and we never hear again from Philip. Here he is 20 years later. He settled down. He's actually known as the evangelist now. He's probably developed an itinerant preaching ministry, preaching the gospel all throughout uh, the northern region uh, 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 there of Palestine, Galilee, Syria. And uh, clearly this was a man of God. He, he was still around. He was married and has four adult daughters. Neither of them are married. They're all virgins and they're all prophetesses. They're all preaching the word of God. So here you have a very interesting dynamic. But what I find, there's a subtle, there's a subtle uh, inference here that I think we would miss if we read too quickly. It's the humility and forgiveness of Philip. I want you to think for a minute. Philip was one of the seven. I don't think Luke put that there for nothing. It's a reminder, who else was one of the seven? Stephen was one of the seven. Stephen was his friend. He, they probably went to church together. They probably came to faith together. They were discipled together. They went into the ministry together. And they served together. And Stephen was the first victim of Paul's pogrom on the church. It was Stephen who was stoned to death on Paul's authority before Paul was a Christian. How would you feel if the guy who murdered your friend is now a Christian, 
came to town and said, I want to stop and say hello to you. Would you have him in your home? Around your daughters? Would you embrace him? Would you feed him? Would you be joyful to hear about what God is doing in his life? Paul murdered Philip's friend. But nothing is mentioned here of any acrimony. In fact, what we read is that Philip and everyone there in the house begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they didn't want to lose him. That shows you something of the power of the gospel, isn't it? It shows you something about the power of forgiveness. We live in a society today where people hold grudges. They're angry and they, 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 they're bitter and they look to what people have done to them or how they've hurt them and people want vengeance. And here we see there's forgiveness. Vengeance is the way of the world. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now this was total forgiveness. He embraced Paul as his brother in Christ. And Paul murdered his best friend. Put your head around that. You can't fake that. True Christianity shows itself in demonstrations like this. And we've seen demonstrations like that. I was thinking several years, maybe 10, 20 years ago, I can't remember when, there was a time when a gunman went into an Amish community and just gunned down a whole church. The Amish held no bitternesses. We forgive him and we pray for him. Well, what about that, that crazed young man down in South Carolina, the white supremacist who came into a, a black church and gunned down the whole Bible study? And the pastor and the community says, we forgive this young man and we pray for him. You can't fake that. You can't fake that. That's the Holy Spirit that moves within people. That's God. That was Philip. That was a subtle inference there that I saw and I was just jumped out at me. That is amazing. It's remarkable. It says a lot about Philip. And it says a lot about Paul, too, that he was willing to go to Philip's house. We don't know all the interaction that took place, but I would have to imagine that Paul at some point broke down and said to I don't think it was just something he'd swept under the carpet. At some point, Paul must have sat down with Philip and says, I need your forgiveness. What I did was wicked, and I'm sorry. Then Agabus, the prophet, comes into the picture. He was introduced to us earlier in Acts chapter 11, 27. He went to the church of Antioch and warned about a famine that was to come. And that famine did come, and and they had adequate time to prepare. So this was a man who was well-known in the churches in Judea as a, as a prophet. Now, when we talk about prophet here, we're talking about the gift of prophecy that is not speaking about the foretelling of God's word, which is in the ministry or proclamation of God's word, but we're talking about the ministry of prophecy in the foretelling. This is a, a gift that was given. Some say it has ceased after the apostolic age and others believe it still exists uh, to one degree or another and so he had the ability to foresee and warn the church of certain things to come 
And he had a reputation that was established as a credible prophet. He wasn't a false prophet. He was a credible prophet. Been many years that he's been in ministry. And he brings forth a prophecy coming to the home of Philip. And he does so in a very visible demonstration, much like the prophets of the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah? God called him to strip down naked and walk through the streets as a visible demonstration of how God was going to shame Egypt and disgrace Egypt. Or when Ezekiel built a, a scale model of Jerusalem and destroyed it as a, as, a, as, a, as a visual imagery and demonstration of what God was going to do to Jerusalem. This was common among the old prophets. And so here Agabus comes and he takes off the belt of Paul. And this would not have been a short leather belt like we wear today or like John the Baptist wore, but it would have been a cloth uh, uh, belt that wrapped around several times. And he would have taken it off his tunic and coat and he bound himself and he says, this is what's going to happen to Paul. You're going to be bound, Paul, and you're going to be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. Now, I want to stop for a minute because some critics will look at this and say, well, he was a false prophet. Because that's not how it went down. The Jews didn't bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles. In fact, it was the Romans who bound him to save him and rescue him from the Jews who wanted to kill him. So that's a false prophecy. But Paul nor Philip or anyone there, do they dispute him? In fact, later in Paul's life, in Acts chapter 28, 17, Paul actually, word for word, when given his own testimony, states it in the same language that Agabus did. He says, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered or handed over as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. We're big on accuracy to the detail, right? A newspaper will have to retract an article if there's one detail that's off. Although nowadays, the news media lies left and right, you don't know what to believe. But here what we're seeing is that the general idea of what was going to happen to Paul was revealed to the prophet. The prophet may have gotten the details a little off. That doesn't make the prophecy inaccurate. The general idea still happens. Paul's going to Jerusalem, he's getting arrested. That's what's going to happen. Don't worry about the details. You get hung up on that, you lose the point. Agabus' prophecy was right on. The problem was the disagreement on what to conclude from this. Right along, Paul knew what was coming. The people in Tyre knew what was coming. Agabus makes it crystal clear. The question is, now that we know what's coming, that Paul's going to get arrested, how do we deal with this? What conclusion do we draw from this? Well, there's one of two conclusions. One conclusion, which was the majority report, do not go to Jerusalem, Paul. The people in Tyre said, do not go. The people in Philip's house said, do not go. In fact, it's a a we statement here. Luke himself is saying, do not go. Why don't they want him to go? Why would they want him to go? Paul's just too valuable of a player to take off the field. This is Paul. We're just in the middle of getting this this, this whole church planning business started. 
We've got church plants all over that we've started, and there's still questions to answer. There's problems to resolve. We, we need to appoint more leaders, more discipleship. There's a lot more to do. Paul, we're going to go to Spain and Rome, and, and you, you can't just go there and, and, and run into the, into the lion's mouth. You're irreplaceable, Paul. Isn't that how we think about ministry sometimes? We think certain people are irreplaceable. If John MacArthur, the Lord, were to take him today, is Grace Community Church finished? No. Some people think it would be. He's just too big of a person. Can't survive without him. No one is too big. Let me just remind you that. Everyone is dispensable. Even Apostle Paul is dispensable. Their vision was very small. Paul's vision was much bigger. Paul came to a different conclusion. He had a different perspective. He knew what he was facing. He wasn't stupid. He wasn't naive. He wasn't foolish. He knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, after all, Christ did say to him when he called him, he says, you're going to suffer great things for my name's sake. And you're going to go before kings and magistrates for my name's sake. Well, how is Paul going to get before kings and magistrates if he continues going from city to city in Greece and in, and in Asia planting churches? He's trained other men to do that now. God has a different plan for him. And Paul says, I'm not only ready to go to jail, I'm ready to die. Paul would indeed get arrested. And for several years, he would stand before Felix and Festus, and he would ultimately stand before, the, before Caesar. He would get to Rome and have a trial before Caesar Nero, and he would preach the gospel to that lunatic of an emperor. He was a witness before all, and he did it all with joy. You know why Paul's able to do this? Because what he said to the elders in the chap previous chapter, I don't count my life as dear to me. You see, Paul saw the call on his life. He saw that he was called to be faithful. The danger, the risk, the threat of death, and the threat of imprisonment did not frighten him. Can't you see the parallel also here with, with our Lord? Three times Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there the Jews will betray the Son of Man. What did Peter say? Well, he said, when anyone else would say who you love someone, you're not going. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You seek the things of this world. I'm seeking the things of God. Luke tells us that the Lord's face was like flint facing towards Jerusalem. He, he would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Again, remember what I keep saying throughout these sermons. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul truly is following Christ. And that's, the, that's what Luke wants to communicate to us, that, that Paul is the true successor to Christ. He truly represents Christianity in its fullest sense. 
I want to say this. When Paul says, I'm ready to die, what about you? Are you ready to die for your faith? Let me put it another way. Are you willing to take any risk and face any danger for the sake of the name of Jesus? Think about that. You could sit here and say, yeah, sure, amen. But really, would you be willing to give God a blank check on your life? God, use me in any way you will, no matter the cost. We're risk-averse people. We, we long for safety and security. Let me just remind you, safety and security is an illusion. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever safety and security you're clamoring for, God could take it from you in a heartbeat. It's not until you're willing to risk all for him. Do you remember the story of Esther, Queen Esther? It was Queen Esther who, when confronted with the scenario, if you recall, Haman was going to unfold his plot to have all the Jews murdered. Mordecai discovers the plot. Esther's married to the king and says, Listen, Esther, you're the only one, you're the only person who could do this. You're the only person who can have access to the king and warn him of what's to come. Listen to what it says in Esther 4, 14. He says to Esther, this is Mordecai's uncle, he says, Listen, if, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, God's going to accomplish his purpose with or without you. But you're here for a purpose, Esther. You didn't marry the king so you could lay down on a couch and eat grapes all day. God has you here for a reason. (coughs) And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's the attitude of a person who is completely given over to Christ. I will do whatever you want of me, Lord, and if I perish, I perish. It's the attitude of the American who gives up everything to go to the mission field. It's the attitude of someone who is willing to face any danger and risk for the kingdom of God. I'm afraid that what has so crippled and paralyzed Christianity here in the West, it's not persecution. It's comfort. We are just too comfortable. We're too safe. And we want to keep it that way. We're not willing to give up our comfort and security and pleasure for Christ. Satan has one way to neutralize us, and that's it. 
Would you be willing to lose all for Christ? Would you be willing to be impressed? Let me tell you this. There will come a time, I believe, where we will all be faced with this. Yes, here in America. The tide is shifting. Culture has changed. It's progressed quite a bit in the last 10, 20 years. It will only get worse. The, the tide is going to shift more hostile towards Christianity. And sooner or later, you're going to find yourself having to make a choice. Serve God, even if it means being, being dangerous and taking a risk and losing things for Christ. Or saying, mm, I'll just kind of stay in my comfort zone. In ancient Rome, when the church was being persecuted, some Christians were given the choice. They came up to them and said, listen, you either renounce Christ and say Caesar's Lord, and you live. That's the choice. We all know the stories. Polycarp, an old man, I've served the Lord. He's been good to me 83 years. How can I deny my Lord? And they dragged him, an 83-year-old man, into an into a amphitheater and had him eaten alive by wild beasts. And there were those who were faithful, right to the very end. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Brother Ben's been reading it. They suffered horrible, horrific forms of death. Then there were others. There were those in the church who said, okay, okay, I'll renounce Christ, worship Caesar. And they would go to the temple, and they would offer sacrifice. They would play along because they didn't want to lose their comfort. They didn't want to lose their place in society. They didn't want to be excluded from society. They didn't want to pay a price for being a Christian. Guess what happened to them? They still got murdered. They still got executed. They still went to jail. The Romans saw them as even worse than the Christians who stayed true. They saw them as traitors. They saw them as cowards. And their deaths were far more miserable than those who stayed true. God's grace surrounded the martyrs who stayed true and gave them comfort in the moment of their distress. But those who denied Christ suffered the most ignoble and horrific deaths because God wasn't with them. Let me end with this. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Want to follow Jesus? You're a Christian, you're a disciple of Christ. It means you follow him. It means you have to be willing to deny yourself. Take up your cross. That means giving God the blank check. He says, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the, that's the irony in being a Christian. Jim Elliott said it best. He, who is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's true biblical Christianity. You know why? Because Christ gave it all up for us. When we think of all that Christ gave up, the glory of heaven, the glory of the angels who declare his praise day in and day out, 
sitting at the right hand of majesty, and to come to this world and humble himself to the point to become a human being, one of his creation, and to die a most humiliating and disgraceful death, a painful death, and to bear our penalty on the cross, Christ gave up everything for you and me. Because he loves us. And if we can't give up anything for him, what does that say about us? Maybe we've never come to love the Savior. We've never come to know the truth of the love of the Savior. You know what I see among Christianity today? Weakness. We become effeminate, and I mean not in a gender-type casting way, but we're afraid to confront the darkness of this world. We're afraid to confront sin. We're afraid to take a stand for righteousness. We're afraid to lose and take a risk. My goodness, there are people who are afraid to even come to church because they're afraid they might get sick. What has become of Christianity today? Kaltume shared with me some years ago about her sister living in Nigeria. They go to church each Sunday not knowing when Boko Haram may walk in the door and mow everyone down. But they still go to church. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my heart, Lord, before you today is humbled because I feel guilty as I speak for our people. We're all guilty before you, O Lord. Guilty in a sense that we're too comfortable for you. We're too comfortable, Lord. We don't know what it is to risk for you. I know one day we'll be tested, and I pray that when we are, we're able to stand the test. Help us to love you more than life itself. Help us, O Lord, to delight in you and to treasure you above all else in this world. Forgive us for losing focus. Forgive us for being like Demas who loved this world more than he loved you. Help us, Jesus, to stand firm for the truth. Help us to stand firm for your gospel and help us to stand firm in our convictions. May we never cower and capitulate to the world system. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we close in song. And there's, there's still a prophecy that is the, the hope of our faith that Jesus Christ is coming soon. As he said in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me 
to repay each one for what he has done.